Welcome to the eighth podcast in our sermon series, Finding Jesus in Ecclesiastes. I'm Dan Randick, one of the elders at City on a Hill Church, located in Rosemount, Minnesota. Our service is live streamed every Sunday at 10 a.m. from our YouTube channel. Join us as Bruce Bentley continues our series with a sermon titled, Crooked Wisdom. Welcome, everybody, the sun's out, there's sun rays beaming in, happiness, there's still birds out there somewhere singing, and we're glad that you're here. Uh, I'm going to give a little elder update before we have a little time of prayer and I get going with the uh, worship time. One of the things that we talk about uh, every once in a while, and I haven't brought up in a while, which is why I'm doing it, is our Acts 1-8 strategy. So if you're familiar with that passage, or if you're not, here's what it says, basically. Jesus is speaking, and he is telling to, well, he's telling his disciples that you're going to be my witnesses, and you don't have to actually see him with your eyeballs to be his witness, because if he lives in you, if he's alive in you, which if you're a believer, a follower of Christ, then he is, then you are a witness to a living Jesus. So maybe you haven't seen him with your eyes, but you know him in your life. Does that make sense? You are a witness, believer, follower, to the power of a resurrected living Jesus resurrecting you each day to live within uh, his plan and for his purpose. So, Jesus says, you are going to be my witnesses, and he lists off kind of basically three areas, in Jerusalem, uh, to Judea, Samaria, and even to the ends of the earth. So our Acts 1-8 strategy kind of patterns or, or mirrors that, okay? Rosemount, Dakota County, the cities within our uh, uh, realm of influence, even the metro area and a larger uh, picture scope of things, that's our Jerusalem. And uh, next month, we'll be talking more about our international reach, so I'm not going to go into that right now, uh, but we are a part of uh, uh, the ends of the earth, what Jesus has told us to do. We'll talk about that in November, but in that middle part, Judea, Samaria. Uh, Judea is the area, well, that Jew, Jewish disciples would have been comfortable, oh yeah, I get that, they're my friends. Samaria, I'm not comfortable with that. And I don't know them, and I'd rather go around them, ignore them, not bother with them. So we have areas in uh, our nation, even, that are kind of go-around areas. I'd rather not bother for whatever variety of reasons. Uh, And one of those areas that we have identified is the Rosebud Reservation. Uh, It's flyover land. Uh, It's an area that's difficult to develop a sustainable disciple-making ministry and relationships, but that's one area that we have chosen to stay involved in. So yesterday, I was part of a board meeting in Sioux Falls, meeting with a number of other people that are part of Lakota Journey uh, and that board, and then you know doing our annual meeting thing. Everybody loves annual meetings, but we had a productive time and uh, planning ahead for 2019, the things that we are involved in. So I'm saying all of that because I want to encourage you to continue to be aware and to continue to pray. Now, uh, fortunately, we have Bill Risto, who is encouraging once a month prayer right before the service starts, which is a second Sunday, right? Second Sunday of every month to set aside a half an hour to come a little early 
and to spend some time in prayer sharing requests and kind of, you know, making sure that we're aware of things that are going on. Uh, We didn't have Pastor Paul, some of you know him, uh, from Mission. We didn't have him because he was busy with another group that we met last summer out on the reservation, so he didn't come. And his uh, cohort in ministry, uh, Randy is his name, so Pastor Randy was going to come and meet with us in Sioux Falls. He gets a few miles outside of Mission and hits a deer in the darkness yesterday morning. He sends a picture of what's left of his car, uh, and well, it was not God's will for you to be with us. (laughs) And fortunately, it wasn't so mangled that he couldn't drive back home, uh, but it was pretty messed up. So anyway, we didn't get to meet with Randy yesterday. That's the way things panned out. But pray for Paul. Uh, He has had, you know, different challenges, some of those health-related in his life and even recently. So be praying for him, please. Uh, Remember Randy? He's out of car right now for most practical functioning purposes. Uh, and, uh, you know, income is limited, and uh, so maybe there's a way we can bless him or bless the church in the coming weeks or months. We'll, we'll see how that goes. But continuing to pray for exciting new things, ministry involvement in different communities on the reservation, this church from Cross Point in Iowa that we got to know last summer, they were, or maybe they're still there, group from uh, Iowa, on the reservation, getting to know people, having um, what appears to be an awesome response with a very small community that other churches ignore. Uh, Fly over land, drive by land, whatever. There's just a small number of people there who cares. And this church from Crosspoint cares. And they're having conversations, gospel-centered kind of stuff that's going on, uh, just uh, Jesus loves me, so I choose to love you, you know, and I don't have to kind of stuff is going on. It's great stuff. Uh, pray that God would bless those conversations and what's going on there, not just through Crosspoint, but with Tuahi, uh, Paul and Randy's church, and the ongoing potential to reach people for Christ and make disciples. Isn't that awesome? Things are happening that we prayed for for over 20 years, uh, and they're now happening in new and fresh and I think very exciting ways. So with that in mind, let's pray for a few moments here, and we'll continue with Ecclesiastes. Lord Jesus, we're grateful for all who take your call seriously to go and make disciples. And as we understand uh, that challenge, Lord, to as we are going, go out and be a part of what you're doing through us. And uh, as we continue to talk about you, as we share our faith, as we open up your word with other people, as we read, as we talk through your truth, Lord, I ask that you would bless all of those conversations, regardless of where we're at. All, everything, that you, every place that you put us in, we know is part of your greater purpose and plan. So Lord, open our eyes and our ears so we'd be found faithful in those opportunities as you present them. Lord, uh, specifically, I want to pray for uh, Pastor Paul and Pastor Randy and their family families and their needs, Lord, whether it's car or health-related. Lord, I want and we want your will to be done, so we pray, Lord, that you would work in a way that would encourage your servants and work, Lord, so that your servants can be found faithful to how you would want them to live and to teach and to love and to interact with others. Lord, for Tuwahi and their ongoing fellowship and reaching out to 
to areas and communities that haven't been reached or been ignored or whatever, Lord, uh, we know that the name of Jesus is being presented and talked about in new and exciting ways, and we ask, Lord, you'd bless every one of those conversations to bring people to the point where they realize what they've been searching for can be found in you, to know you, to respond to your gospel. Lord, we pray that there be a fresh new working of your spirit there on the rosebud and even in our Jerusalem here, Lord. Work in new ways to draw our attention, our eyeballs, our ears, our minds, and our hearts to the one who made us, to the one who is calling us back, to the one who provides for us ultimately everything that we need. And, and finally, Lord, that the one who has set us apart for even greater things than what we can imagine, that they begin here in our lives as you have set them apart for your purpose. So make us, Lord, followers that are keenly aware that there are more things going on than what we can see and that you are behind them and we can trust you in all of them. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So we are back into the book of Ecclesiastes. It's kind of in the middle of the Old Testament, somewhere in the middle of your Bible. If you have a Bible, I would encourage you to pull it out and find it, even if it's on your electronic fancy device, as long as you're not playing some other weird game. You can use that. And we have extra Bibles in the back if you'd like to borrow one of those. We are in the process of finding Jesus in this ancient book of wisdom and poetry and philosophy and all these crazy other things that are going on. So what we are doing this morning uh, is considering the never-ending search for wisdom. And uh, I thought I'd choose one of these, these pictures that I took on my hike of almost a month ago, or uh, yeah, about a month ago now, because uh, it reminds me of things old and ancient, and maybe not as old as the stones in Utah, but for centuries, the search for wisdom has been going on. Ancient guys, philosophers, we see the writings, everybody from different cultures and backgrounds have their stories, have their way of searching. That's really what philosophy is about, what it means, searching for the meaning of life, right? So are we, I mean, not just are, but we uh, I'm not questioning that. We are on all of us, regardless of how we do it. We are all on some kind of journey uh, to try to understand what our lives are about. What is the point of this? If you're breathing right now, you've come to some conclusion it's worth, worth it to keep breathing, right? That there is value to life. So that means there, you are embracing some point on the journey of, of wisdom and discovering and considering what's going on. Uh, even Ecclesiastes says the search for wisdom is a good thing. Back to chapter 2, verse 13, there's more gain in wisdom than in folly. But as we've discovered, there are messages that seem conflicting or that seem troubling in the book of Ecclesiastes. The reality of life and searching for wisdom and what comes of that is also in this book. Back to chapter 1, verse 18, for in much wisdom is much vexation. And he even goes on to say, if you search for wisdom, guess what? You're going to get stuff that you didn't expect. It's going to increase your sorrow. Oh, great, right? The things that we are searching for, we may get part of it, but we're going to get other stuff that we didn't bank on or count on. So this morning, I want to begin with this. How is your search for wisdom going? 
Because I do believe we're searching in some way, whether we acknowledge it or think about it a whole lot. We are searching. Maybe, maybe you're in a place where you're serious about it. Uh, your intention is deep, to go deep into different philosophy or learning, or you've read a lot of you know, philosophers from ancient times or maybe from the 19th century, and you look really cool in the coffee shop you know, with your book out. It's Kant or it's you know, Nietzsche or it's uh, somebody else that I never read before, and you're in the coffee shop and you've got your cool uh, philosopher book out. Uh, maybe you're in another place where the philosophy goes as deep as The Simpsons. Uh, or maybe some other movie that we can talk about. Regardless, uh, I think we're all at some point that we are searching or at least beginning to think. So let me read to you a very key couple verses from chapter 7. Consider the work of God. That's what we're doing this morning. We're considering now. We're directing our minds and our hearts to what God is doing. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful, and in the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. That's what we're doing. Even twice in those verses, he says, consider. To do that, you have to think and you have to slow down. God has made both of those. And this interesting sentence that we begin with, who can make straight what God has made crooked? Hmm, why is God making crooked things? That ought to come to mind pretty quickly. Why would God make things crooked? So what we need to make sure we understand is this, I mean, to start off with, that doesn't imply moral crookedness or perversity to some level or extreme. God is not the author of immorality, okay? So can we agree on that? It's not crooked in a moral kind of way. He's not talking about that. What we are talking about is crooked in the sense of just not right in the way that we can understand and comprehend things, in the way that we see things, in the way that we take in life. It's crooked. It's not straight. It's not easy to grasp onto. Uh, I think I've got another picture here. Yeah, so if you can kind of see that, I love this picture. Uh, I'll share all sorts of pictures with you later. Just I know how much fun it is to watch somebody else's vacation pictures. So I'm, you know, I'm not going to drag you through hundreds. But I like this one because it was such a cool opportunity to stop and take in this panoramic view. Okay, this is in Bryce National Canyon. Uh, or Na uh, National Park, Bryce Canyon. So you see a few runners that are kind of st standing around on the left-hand side like I was doing, and oh, <laughs> taking it in. So I walked a little bit farther than them, and I stopped, and I took this panoramic photo. And you see one guy off in the right-hand corner? Can you kind of see him sticking up by that huge uh, piece of rock that just juts up uh, out of the canyon there, which is where the path went? So it was a great moment to stop and do two things, to look back at where I'd come from, because there's this long, winding switchback trail. It was nothing but uphill for what, what seemed like miles, and maybe it was a mile or two. It was really hard. You look back, and, oh, that was worth it, because <laughs> I get to see all this. And you look ahead to, I ain't done yet. 
<laughs> I get to go buy that cool thing and take more pictures, you know, which everybody was doing. But then you're on the top of a ridge and you see all these other runners that are far faster and more competent than you are. And they're just tearing down this hill because it feels good because you're going downhill for a while. And then they go off into oblivion somewhere. And then you realize, I got a long ways to go, so I better not stand around very long because I want to get this done before the end of the day, right? There is something about considering the crookedness that causes us, well, it should cause us to stop every once in a while and think, okay? So there are great moments in life when you can stop and take it in, right? You get to the top of the ridge and this is glorious. What I get to experience and what God has done to bless me, I can take it in. I can think about my family, I can think about my kids or grandkids, I can think about my friends, I can think about what God has done, I can look back and say, yep, that area in my life was rough, and I do not want to repeat that, (laughs) and I made it, I got through that time. And then you also get to look ahead and say, well, I can see part of where I'm going, maybe, you know, on some of these trails I could see right here in front of me, but I know i got a long ways to go, and I can't see where that trail takes me. I sure wish I could. (laughs) I wish I could look. I wish that the height of that ridge was so high, oh, I see the finish line down there. I am almost there. You know, there's nothing like when you're running when you see the finish line. Ah, I'm almost done. You know, you just just, this wave of relief (laughs) goes over you, especially if it's a long run. Not so with this, with any of these runs. You could not see the finish line until the very end. I'm talking yards from it. So, and I didn't have a fancy watch on. It was telling me how far I was going. And you kind of lose track of time because you're hours into it. You don't know how far away the finish line is. So from there, it's kind of like, well, all of our lives. Every once in a while, you get to take it in and breathe easy. And, oh, this is good. But you look ahead, and I can only see so much. I don't know what God is going to, maybe I got a whole another steep area to go through. Maybe I got to go down into another valley and wander around there for a while and wonder how long this is going to take. You follow me? It is tough, this journey that we go on, and we can only ever see so much of it. That is what I think the preacher in Ecclesiastes is saying. It's crooked. We don't know how far it's going to go, how long it's going to take, what the end of it is. We don't know. We know it's out there, and God has put us in this, and we don't know all of his plan and his purpose and how he's going to take us there. Pastor Randy did not not expect to hit a deer on his way to our meeting in the darkness, in the middle of nowhere, but he did. And now his car is wrecked. Issues like that happen with all of us, whether it's a deer or something else that blindsides us. Those things happen. Life is crooked. And the search that we have has to consider, okay, God, how are you in this? And do I trust you enough from wherever my vantage point is, whether it's at the top of the ridge or in the bottom of the valley, Do I trust you enough because I can't see the end that you're good enough to take me through that, to get me through that, to enable me to embrace those things wisely that I can't see completely or understand? That's the crookedness that we find ourselves in 
whether we like it or not. So this chapter leads us into some of these things that are crooked, that we don't quite get, and, uh, and that even seem foreign and hard to want to grasp. So that's what we're going with the rest of this message this morning. Chapter 7, some crooked wisdom. First thing we're going to look at is that, funerals over birthdays. And it really is about the end and not the beginning. You got that? He says some dark things. Really? Funerals, death, better than the beginning? What? Who thinks like that? Well, he's calling us, the preacher is calling us, to think in some ways that are very foreign and seem very crooked to us in the way that he talks. So, Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 2, it is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Okay? Why is this better? How is this better? Well, there's a challenge embedded in this verse, and it really is the end of the verse. It's, it's located in the end of the verse, and the living will lay it to heart. In, the, in uh, the first, I think, seven verses of this chapter, the heart, and wisdom is mentioned a lot too, throughout the book, wisdom is mentioned many times, and especially the heart in these verses is emphasized. So what does it mean to lay it to heart? Well, it's a deep and, uh, and multi-layered word that he uses for heart. And uh, many times, well, throughout Scripture, many times we've talked about this in the past, it's far more than just your emotions, it's a lot more than a pop song, okay? The heart, as the Bible speaks to us, is deep and wide. There's a lot going on It's behind that word. It includes our thought, our memory, our inclinations, our resolutions, uh, our, our passions, as well as our emotions. So if you take something to heart, well, even we talk about, we talk that way today, right? I'm going to take that to heart, right? Have you ever used that? Or you ever heard somebody say that? I'm going to really take that to heart. It means you're taking it what? Seriously, right? I'm going to take that seriously when it comes to this passage and the message that's here. We can't take it lightly. If you're thinking about life and the end of life and what's most important in life, he is calling us to say, you've got to stop. You've got to slow down and think very seriously. So, on, uh, fast forward into verse 4, the heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth, okay, or of uh, jovialness or happiness or party, uh, whatever going on there. So uh, that's kind of the background of that. But, you know, house of mourning, house of fools, there are some ridiculous over-the-top kind of things that maybe come to mind when you see that first, house of fools, right? Well, there's some really foolish people that live all over the place. And what happens in their home or on their property is the stuff of legend and hits a newspaper. And maybe you've known somebody or had a neighbor like that. Uh, that's not exactly, that include, is included in what he's talking about. But uh, we don't have to go to that extreme to really understand the point of it. I think what we're talking about as what he introduces here is a lifestyle, going to the house of fools, it is a lifestyle of living for the weekend. That becomes 
the place where fools dwell. Why? Well, within the context, the people who live for the weekend, for the party, for the buzz that, ha- that happens with the party, the avoidance of stuff that's difficult or hard like work or family problems or uh, other issues, if I can just make it to the weekend, right? Friday's here. I can obliterate everything I didn't like about the work week. Uh, that kind of lifestyle is jumping straight into the house of where fools are. They're there because they are avoiding reality. There's a party with the birthday that ignores the reality of where life is going and especially the wisdom that comes with the end of your life. So it really truly is about living a lifestyle that denies the reality of of pretty much, well, everything. It's not easy to embrace things during life and avoid the house of fools, he says, uh, to embrace things that are, that are, well, they're just plain difficult. Psalm 90 verse 12 has something to say about the heart. The psalmist says, teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Wisdom knows, acknowledges that the trail is leading somewhere. Like I was talking about, there is a point to this. And you are on this journey with, well, with the rest of us. Wisdom says, the life that I'm living on that journey, on that trail, it's worth considering that there is an end at the end of the trail. It is going to end. So what is my life about? If you live for the weekend, You'll never stop to really consider what is the point of all this. Now, I've been, I don't know how many funerals I've been to in my life. I've, I've only officiated a handful of them. But I've been to enough to talk to people who have really never lived past the weekend as far as embracing the realities. And all of a sudden, they're at a funeral of a loved one. And it hits them like a Mack truck, they're gone. What now? What? And then, not just what now for me or my friends or family, but the next, the the logical next reality that hits them is, what is it about? They're gone and I'm left, and what do I do with this newfound reality that they never really thought about before? I can't remember who, where I got this, uh, but it, after I heard it, it always kind of bumps around in my head. And I, so I'm going to a dark place. Stick with me here, okay? But it's true. Every year, every year in the calendar, you pass the anniversary of your death. You ever think about that? It is on the calendar. Somewhere on there, there is a day that you're going to die. And I'm not saying that you fixate and obsess on it, okay? Okay. I'm not saying that that's where wisdom is taking us. But this passage certainly is saying you've got to live aware of the fact that it is going to end. And what is it about your life now that matters? What is it that you dwell on? What is it that you, in, that you invest in? What is it that you think about? Are you living like it will end or are you trying to ignore those realities for the benefit of the party that will numb you through the next day or through the next weekend.
So that's part of what chapter 7 is teaching us. Here's the next thing. Some more crooked wisdom, okay? These days over the good old days. It's really about where we're going, not dwelling on where we've been. Let's read verse 10. Say not, why were the former days better than these? I love how he says that. This is ancient wisdom literature. And then he goes on to say, for it is not from wisdom that you ask this. How many of us, at a weak moment or maybe kind of a self-centered moment, have asked that almost word-for-word question? This is from hundreds of years ago. But why, why were the former days better than these? Oh, I wish things could be the same. That's what I like. That's where I was comfortable. Why can't they just stay that way? And then life is good, right? Have you ever been in that? That kind of tunnel vision thing? And then what does he just almost casually say in the second sentence? It is not from wisdom that you ask that. You know, it's almost kind of sarcastic or tongue-in-cheek. That is a kind of a stupid way of thinking about life, I think, is far more uh, close or closer to the way he is addressing us. That is not a wise way to approach life now or even moving into the future. We can focus so much on the past and, and the good old days, we can romantically distort reality. Oh, if it was just like that, right? And, and forget about the reality of the present and what God is doing. And what God is calling us into. So, there is a black circle around the word church. You can't really see it right now. Just in case you didn't read that right, okay? Make church great again. So, uh, here's, here's my point. Here's my illustration. In college, when I was younger, as a Christian, I was going to a Christian school. We're studying through the New Testament. We come to the book of Acts. And uh, I had this romantic distortion about people in the New Testament times, especially when you look at Acts chapter 2 and chapter 3, how the believers react, the Spirit is poured out, and the believers uh, have this amazing fellowship uh, community reaction to how the Spirit's changing them, right? You know that? Uh, They shared everything in common. Uh, The believers saw needs and I've got plenty, so I take and sell what I have, and and I take the money, and I give it to those who don't have. They broke bread together all the time, it says, you know, constantly in prayer and worship and fellowship. And if you idealistically distort that, you think, they were in heaven, right? I did that. Like, oh, if only we could have an experience today like they had. Why don't we? God, why don't you move? Why, Lord, why, why doesn't the Spirit pour out? And then cause us to react to each other in such an overwhelming, loving way. It's almost the idealistic distortion. It's like lovey, gushy stuff. You know, like they're all hugging each other all the time. I I went to that, you know, why can't we? I don't really want to hug you all the time. But sometimes a hug is okay, right? I, I, I distort to the point where they must have just hugged each other all the time. It seems so good what the scriptures are explaining to us. And I had a professor who very gently talked to me about that one time. And I, I still remember it because he, he gently pointed out other passages in the New Testament where things weren't so great. That within the earliest church, 
There was all sorts of sin and immorality and idolatry and adultery and you name it. They had every problem and issue and distortion and sin that we have today. And in some ways, maybe you could say even more so. They had it all. I thought that, oh, if we could only be like the past, if the former days, if they could be now. And that was not from wisdom. That was from, I don't know, just being ignorant. I was ignorant, really. I was childish in the way I looked at the Bible. I needed to grow up and understand, really, what was going on. You know what? We can do that in so many ways today, can't we? I mean, if we're just honest and, and, and real with each other for a moment, uh, and especially if you've been around in the church for a while, uh, you can think back to, oh, if only we had this approach to uh, worship or singing like, like, like I used to have, because you know, that was really wonderful and it was awesome. Uh, if we only had that today, or you can think in the way of the programs or the ministries or the stuff you're in, you can distort that too, right? If only it could be uh, like that. If only everybody, because it seemed like everybody did it then. Why doesn't everybody get involved now? Uh, we can distort things that way too. We can, we can expect certain um, perfection things <laughs> from each other because of the distortion from the past. And that doesn't do any of us any good. It's not from wisdom that we do that. And that's just about the church. We could take that same uh, idea there and then project that onto the way that we treat each other and our families and, and, and other realms or areas of influence that you have. Uh, we can't live in the former days. They are gone. It's not from wisdom. So consider that. Think about that. One more thing here from chapter 7. And it's way to the end of the chapter here. And uh, this crooked wisdom uh, leads us into thinking as we get caught up with ourselves that really it's my way. Uh, it really is my way and not God's way. So chapter 7 challenges us to think about our limitations, not our abilities, but it is really about our limitations in the sense of who we really are right now. Okay? So maybe that sounds confusing, so I'm going to try to explain it to you here. Ecclesiastes chapter 7, all the way down to verse 29. See, this alone I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. Now, a lot of people read chapter, the end of chapter 7 and say the preacher, who we think is Solomon, he's nothing but a dirty old misogynist. Okay, when they read that. Because the, the way he talks about men, and especially the way he talks about women. He says in verse 26, And I find something more bitter than death. The woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Behold, this is what I found, verse 27 says, The preacher, while adding one thing to another, to find a scheme of things which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I have not found. What? Are you kidding me? I mean, that sounds pretty bad, right? There's a lot of people, a lot of commentators, very you know, uh, um, learned scholar people that read that and want to reject everything because of just how harsh he is on women. So we have to stop and remember a few things here, okay? Solomon ain't perfect. In fact, 
if it is Solomon that's writing these, none of the biblical authors are perfect. None of them. And Scripture is filled with many times more bad examples from personal character issues than good ones. You follow me? That doesn't mean that this book isn't inspired by God. It does mean that not only this book, but all the books of the Bible, God inspires, God uses, God breathes in his, his truth into different writers, no matter how dysfunctional and broken they are. He still uses them, which ought to be a great encouragement to all of us, right? He, none of the writers of the Bible, none of the people in the Bible, and none of us, nowhere do you find perfection, none of us have arrived. What Solomon does is he speaks from, well, his viewpoint, and it's twisted or it's tainted, his background, if you know about Solomon, and hundreds of concubines, are you kidding me? He was far from a perfect, moral, upright person. We can say that, I think, with, with clarity and certainty. So he had issues with women, and that's going on here. And certainly that influenced him in his writing right here. But even more so, you got to catch this. Uh, it, it, there is an exaggeration to what he says. He says he's found one man in a thousand and not one woman. So just percentage-wise, does it really matter? <laughs> I mean, go back and read the verses. It really doesn't. Whether it's a man or a woman, he's not finding anyone uh, that could be someone who is, well, is trustworthy, uh, someone who has learned and arrived, okay, someone that you can depend on and trust in, there really isn't anybody out there. If there's any point that we can take, isn't that Solomon has an issue with women, he has discovered in his perspective, as limited as it is, we all have a limited one, his is no different in that sense, limited as it is, he only sees so much, and what he sees is all negative at this point. And what do people do that's negative? He says this, See alone I have found God made man upright, but they, that men, men and woman, have sought out many different schemes. Okay, what is that? What is that about here? Verse 27, the preacher says, while adding one thing to another to find a scheme of things, that's what men and women, that's what we all do. We're in this weird thing here right now where we're trying to make life work. We're trying to add things together and scheming and how we can make it work. That's what he is drawing us to think about, adding one thing to another. If life could be summarized mathematically, okay, if you're a mathematician this morning, then this part hopefully connects better with you. If, if life is one big math problem, then if you, if you understand the math, then what? You should be able to figure it out. If you do the math right, then you should be able to find the equation. Now, I don't even know if this makes sense. Because <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm not Mr. Mathematician. I don't understand chemistry. I, do, I will tell you this. I took chemistry in high school from a teacher who was kind of filling in last minute because whatever teacher we had was gone. I don't know why. And she admitted to us the first week of class that she got a C in chemistry in college. 
And she is our teacher at this small, I'm like, not exactly a confidence builder, and I've always been insecure with math, but in chemistry, all we did all year long is try to balance equations. So again, I just did a Google search, and I don't know if this makes sense. It could be gobbledygook. I don't know. Maybe you're looking at me thinking, you are so dumb. That is, <laughs> you know, that, that's true. I don't understand. But I, I do remember the struggle in chemistry trying to make a balanced equation. So you can kind of <laughs> live in an alternative reality like what I did for half the class, thinking I can fudge my way through this. If I just make my equations look good, like to me this looks good, if I just make it look good, then I'll get the grade I need and kind of get through this. You can't do that. There is nowhere to hide in the math or in the balancing of the equation. If it's wrong, the teacher, even though she got a C, uh, she had enough you know, answer sheets, whatever, she could tell that it was wrong. There's no place to hide. That's kind of the thing that the preacher is asking us to consider. Think about your life. You are trying to put together, you're trying to add up enough to make it come out to balance in the end. Now I get it. The problem is a huge one. We don't have all the inputs necessary. We don't have 100% all of the information to plug into the equation to finally get the answer. Oh, we wish, we wish it was possible. There are times I wish if I could understand why, if I could put the equation together, I wouldn't feel so bad or it wouldn't be so scary life, uh, but you know what? I can't, and you can't either. You can try to fudge at it. You can try to get by if I'm close enough, but mm, you're not going to get there. It's scheming, the author says. We can try to scheme our way through and add up and hopefully get there. We don't have enough information to put it all together. We have to admit that we're limited, we are. We can't grasp it. Even if God said, here's the information, write out your equation, balance it out, we could not. It's just impossible. We wish it were, uh, we can't do it. We're far too limited. There isn't enough to plug in to the equation. So how do we respond to this crooked kind of wisdom and thinking? What do we do with it? So I want to be as practical as possible here. Three different things. Number one, spend more time engaging in than avoiding ultimate realities. Don't wait to think about the bigger things of life until the next funeral. Don't avoid those problem or issue or things that you, uh, you know, that just frustrate don't put them off. What I'm saying is devote some time to searching. Even though you admit that you're limited, even though I don't get all of it, to make more of a lifestyle of time devoted to, to God, to spending time in prayer, to spending time with your Lord, saying, I don't get it. What wonderful example we have in so many of the Psalms. 
do you realize that so many of our psalms, of the worship in the Bible, is filled with questions? Do you, do you ever notice that? To be real with God isn't to have everything figured out. It's quite the opposite. To have a growing and vital relationship with God, to be connected with him, the, the more you get connected, the more questions are. At least that's what I've experienced. But the more you realize he's with you, that he's sufficient, that he's able for all of your needs, even though all the questions don't go away. So spend some time engaging in the greater questions of your life instead of avoiding them. Number two, what's, thing, what's one thing about church you struggle with? And we all do. Tell me the truth. I know the sermons are long. I should have shut up five minutes ago, right? That there's, you know, who has said it? I've never heard a sermon that couldn't have been five, five minutes shorter. Absolutely truth. So I'm going to try to wrap it up here as quick as, you, quick as I can. Here's something we all got to grasp. Every church is dysfunctional. Every church you go into has got its issues or problems or struggles or the, the limitations. They all have it. Now, you can go, maybe this is your church that you've, I've arrived. It's wonderful. Everything's great. I'm feeling it, you know. Uh, romantic distortion, right? And then eventually you realize, uh, that wasn't true. And there's going to be something you struggle with. There's something that's irritating and then what? Well, the temptation is to go to the next place because they seem to be more fulfilling right now and, and better for me, the fit's better, da-da-da, you know, the, the list of stuff. And you find your one thing, whatever your one thing is, satisfied in the next place. And I promise you that whatever the satisfaction is, that will also go away. The romantic distortion, uh, it ends and something happens the person you like or the pastor you like or that ministry you like or whatever, and then it ends or it goes away or it changes, right? If you're in a constant search mode or been in that, uh, you know, tempting mode, at least, tempting to do that, you will be emptier for it. You will if you're constantly searching for the better thing. So what is it? Be real with me, with leadership, with God, if there's something you're really struggling with when it comes to church or even our church, be real with it. Be upfront with it. Take off the rose-colored glasses. It is what it is. And why is it that I'm struggling with that? So many of my struggles, I find out, uh, should be, and I think are there, to point me back to what is it in my heart that I need to work on, that I'm trying to avoid or ignore uh, work around, hope it goes away. Nah, there's still something in there. And it is not wisdom to say, oh, if it's just, if I could just live in dreamland and try to recreate, nah, God's not there. God's not in the past. He is now moving us into the future. That scripture is filled with examples of how God keeps saying that, especially through the prophets, okay? He is a God of new things. Do we perceive it? Are we on the page with him? Are we moving forward? That requires absolute dependence by faith. And it absolutely means we let go of the past. We have to do it. Third thing, examine the equation of your life. I've been fudging the figures to try to get through and hope that the teacher doesn't catch it. What is it that is missing? <laughs> and acknowledge it. 
be real with it right now. Life is crooked, isn't it? There are a whole lot of things that we wish we could avoid, but, and there's a whole lot of things that we wish we could add to make it all balance out, and we can't do it. Facing up to that reality, I think, is the first step. We don't have all the wisdom. Isaiah 55, 6 says this, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. If we fall short, which we do, it's time to start saying, okay, God, I am going to believe that you don't fall short, that you have what it is that I need right now, and choose to place your faith and your trust in the one who is the author of all things. Even at the end of the chapter, he says, God made man upright, and we chose to go the other direction. There is confidence that we can find in knowing this. The end of the trail is out there. God is there waiting when we get there. And the assurance that he has the plan, and he loves you, and he has set apart things for you that will blow your mind when you finally see the equation come together, that God was in all of those things, and if we'd simply, with the, the measure of faith that he gives us, keep returning to him, to trust in him, like we read earlier, in all of your ways, acknowledging that God, he's good enough to be trusted, he's capable to get us there, the end is going to be worth it all if we keep seeking him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, again, I thank you for the truth of your word. And now I ask, Holy Spirit, that you would work in us in a fresh new way. Revive us. Enable us, Lord, to see what it is you would have us personally, individually, see and understand this morning. And Lord, as we call out to you, and whatever place we're at in life with the frustration of not having all the pieces together, Lord, enable us to admit that our schemes don't work. They come up short. And that you, Lord, are the answer that we're seeking. The final equation makes sense as we look to you and as we trust in you. And Lord, give us the ability this day, even for this next step, to fully trust. We struggle with that, Lord. You know I do. Do, do we actually believe that you're good enough Enable us, Lord, to say yes. It's worth it to live and, and you, for you, to follow you, to fully trust this day that you are good enough and that you love us that much. Thank you, Lord, for this opportunity to worship. Lift up our eyes and our voices again by doing that. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much for listening. If you're looking for more of our sermon audio, check out our previous podcast, Tomb Runners. For upcoming events, check out our website at mycityonhill.org. Bruce Bentley will be back next week to continue the series, Finding Jesus in Ecclesiastes. 